Joel 2.18 Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. And the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rearguard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. And the threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. And you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female slaves, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're grateful for your word. We thank you that it is a word of hope and comfort and peace to us. We who know you, we who know Christ, and we who are indwelt by your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you'll illumine us by your Holy Spirit and fill us and guide us into all the truth. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Joel the prophet in chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, especially in verses 12 to 17, he has been preaching repentance. When repentance occurs, then restoration or deliverance occurs. There is no deliverance, restoration, redemption, comfort, hope, peace, unless repentance is first. That's why he preached it in verses 12 to 17. Even from chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, 11, he's been warning them about the imminent judgment and that they should repent in light of that judgment. Now that they have repented, now that he's preaching to the remnant and encouraging them with their repentance, he's preaching what will be their benefit or their deliverance, restoration, the promise in verses 18 and following. In fact, he's going to continue this into chapter 3. Hope for the repentant. And what is it? He's going to, in 18 to 20, he's going to restore what he took away from them. Because God, it says in 18, the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. He has zeal and pity or compassion for his repentant people. He doesn't say the word repentance, but of course we know he's talking about repentance based on what has been said in chapters 1 and 2 thus far. He has zeal and pity or compassion for his repentant people. And God will answer their prayers and God will provide their needs, verses 19 and 20. 
He will answer and say to his people, answering their prayers, answering their prayers of repentance. I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. He's going to provide for them and take away their reproach. Never again will the nations malign them and slander them. They won't mock them anymore. And in 20, he's going to take away, he calls it here, the northern army far from you. This is likely the same army as verse 25, the plague of locusts, my great army. But even if he is talking about a foreign invader, he's going to remove that invader. Whether it's human invaders or these insects in verse 25, he's going to remove them, take them away from Israel so that they not torment and destroy the nation anymore. He's going to remove them and even remove the, the remnant of their destruction. He's going to take it all away. 21. Because God provides and God delivers, do not fear. O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. No need to fear when God is near. There's no need to be upset, discouraged when God is close and God will help you. He says also in 22, Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. Even the beasts of the field, the wild animals, will have plenty because God provides. Verse 23, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. And the threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust and the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, my great army, which I sent among you. And you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. No more fear, no more shame, only uh, joy and gladness, rejoicing. This is all that awaits those who repent because God will abundantly provide for them. What is he talking about here? Is he talking about in 18 to 26, and even in 27, we'll get there in a moment, but is he talking about God providing physical needs that will be unending for his repentant people? He's certainly using physical objects, beasts, trees, fruit, the land, the sea. He's using those physical objects, but what's he talking about? He is not talking about permanent physical pleasures. He's talking about the physical pleasures as a a foretaste and an indication of the eternal happiness that the people will experience. Eternal happiness, eternal joy. He means it in that way. That there will be no more affliction, only prosperity, and that forever. Why do we say that? He says in verse 19, I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But the nations, since the time of Joel in 800 B.C., To date, they do reproach the people of God. They do it all the time. And also he says in verse 26, My people will never be put to shame. But they are put to shame in the physical sense. 
That's why we have to say, he means this spiritually speaking. That God will so reverse our spiritual condition to give us eternal comfort, eternal hope, eternal life. That's when there's no more reproach, and that's when we will never be put to shame again. And that's when we have true joy, true satisfaction, true contentment, true abundance, spiritually speaking. Also, in 27, on the spiritual. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. 27 has to do with us having true knowledge of God and true worship of God, worshiping no other God, and therefore having no cause for shame, no cause for disappointment, no cause for lack of hope and salvation, knowing that the Lord is God. He's our God. A few cross-references, especially for verses 26 and 27. Uh, For 26 and 27. In whom do they put their hope? In whom do they put their hope so that there is no shame? He says in 26, praise the name of the Lord your God. He says in 27, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. So we must ask, in whom are they putting their hope? Keep your place here in Joel and turn to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28, 16. Twenty-eight, sixteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be put to shame. Now, the translations will say, will not be disturbed, or literally, or will not be in a hurry. However, the translations into the Greek language of this verse and their quotes in the New Testament, they all say put to shame or not be put to shame because they are interpreting correctly the true meaning of verse 16. He who believes in it, in the stone, and then who is the stone? Christ. Christ is the stone of Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. He who believes in it, the stone, or him, Christ, will not be put to shame. Now, let's turn to Romans 9, Romans 9, 33. Romans 9, 33 where the Apostle quotes Isaiah. And there also, you'll notice, at least in your footnote, if not your translation, Romans nine thirty three, Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame or will not be disappointed. Look at your marginal note and it will say, put to shame. Literally, it says, will not be put to shame. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Romans ten eleven. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. No shame or disappointment. Better 
not be put to shame. Romans 10, 11. Who is the him in Romans 10, 11, and even in Romans 9, 33? Look at Romans 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. No shame for believing in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For this is First Peter two six. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be put to shame, or disappointed. Will not be put to shame. First Peter two six. First John two. First John two. 28. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. To review what we've just said, the Lord that Joel is preaching is the Lord Jesus And when they put faith in the Lord Jesus that he died or will die and rise again for them, they will not be put to shame. When did shame start? That shame is removed when one believes in Christ. Shame started, the shame of sin started in the garden. Genesis 3, 8 to 11 in Genesis 3, 8 to 11, Adam and Eve sinned and they fled. They were in a hurry, like Isaiah said, Isaiah 28, 16, they were in a hurry to what? To disappear away from God because they had shame. Genesis 3, 8, after they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3, 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? They were in a hurry to hide. They were put to shame because of their sin. And now Christ removes it based on repentance and faith in him. Joel 2.27. Joel 2.27. God is known for who he truly is when he judges and when he has mercy. God is known for who he truly is when he judges and has mercy. Both occasions cause people to recognize the true God. In Joel 2.27, he says, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Exodus chapter 8 Exodus chapter 8. Exodus 8, 10. When Pharaoh asked Moses for mercy, Exodus 8, 10. Then he said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. No one like the Lord our God that you might know when the frogs are removed. But in chapter 9, 
chapter 9, 9.13, 9.13 to 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this cause, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. In 9.14, when he sends plagues, the purpose, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Mercy and punishment, both of them cause people to recognize who God is. Was, was this doctrine to know God, to know the true God, to have true knowledge and redemption in the one true and living God. Was this a concept that escaped the common people? Was it a concept that was too difficult to figure out? Was it a concept that very, very few people knew or heard about? Or is this very clear and obvious? Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. Deuteronomy 4, 35. Moses preaches and says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. Well, he just referred in verse 34 to the plagues on Egypt. And who witnessed all that? All the people did. Not just Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron. All the people did. And why was that revealed so publicly, so widespread? In verse 35, it was shown to you that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. Again in 39, Deuteronomy 4.39. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. He's the only one. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28 to 34. Here we're going to see that this scribe, this unbelieving scribe, knew these truths, these obvious truths. 12.28. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. The scribe knew the truth that Joel's preaching and Moses preached. He knew it. Even as an unbeliever, he knew it was true. So then, true knowledge of God in Christ 
that there is no other God, no other way, only redemption is there, that is supreme, or that is fundamental to the knowledge of God. Okay, since we are talking about eternal salvation and Christ, now we come to verses 28 to 32. Verses 28 to 32, and even the previous section, these passages should not surprise us as referring to Christ or the days of Christ. When people read the Old Testament, they have to keep in mind that Christ is explained, he's preached throughout the Old Testament. It's not only in one verse here or one verse there, or one chapter, Isaiah 53, yes, he is preached throughout. If you keep that in mind when you read the Old Testament, then the things that we say here and then the quotations in the New Testament will not surprise you. And that's what we're going to find here in verses 28 to 32, a quote in the book of Acts, quoting this passage as fulfilled. Okay, so verse 28. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female slaves, I will pour out my spirit in those days. In 28, it will come about after this. If we read Acts 2, this passage is in Acts 2, 14 to 21, uh, specifically 2, 17, for this quote where it starts. Acts chapter 2, where on the day of Pentecost and the 120 disciples were waiting in the upper room for the coming of the Holy Spirit to fill them. And... That event occurs in verses 1 to 13. Then the critics of the disciples say that they are full of sweet wine. The disciples were speaking in other languages to all of the rest of the people assembled there on the day of Pentecost, the 120 were, and the crowd accuses these disciples of being drunk. That's answered. The objection is answered in 14. Actually, from 14 all the way to 41. 14 to 41 or 42 is where Peter preaches and the aftermath of his preaching, the result of his preaching. But in terms of the quote, We'll read just 14 to 21, Acts 2, 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood." before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved so in Joel 2:28 when Joel says it will come about after this we take him to mean it will come about in the last days because that's what Peter says in 2:17 it shall be in the last days. When did the last days start? 
And when do the last days end? The last days, they start and end between the first and second comings of Christ. Not just at the end of this period of time when Jesus returns, but it started when he first came. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, and verse 1, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son. That, make, that has reference to the first coming of Christ. Okay, then another example of this expression. First uh, Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. 1 Peter 1, 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. He has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Then, 2 Peter 3, 3, in relation to the return of Christ. 2 Peter 3, 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. When they say that, they're talking about his return, not his first coming, his second coming. Where is the promise of his coming? Until he comes again, they will mock, saying, where is his return? And Peter calls it, the last days in verse 3. The last days, the period between the first and second comings of Christ. Okay? In that, in that period between the first and second comings, Joel says that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Is he referring to a specific incident? Acts chapter 2 says yes. Day of Pentecost. He's referring to the day of Pentecost. According to the Apostle Peter, Joel prophesied that the Spirit will, would be poured out upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Further, your Bible might say all mankind or all people in Joel 2.28, also in Acts chapter 2. The word in the original language, both in the Old and New Testament, is the word flesh, all flesh. Why does the Bible say all flesh? It doesn't say all flesh, meaning man and beast, man and animals. It says all flesh to mean all kinds of people. All kinds of people. If your Bible says all mankind or all people, you may think that the Holy Spirit is to be poured out on every person in the world. The prophet Joel and the apostle Peter didn't mean that. They meant all kinds of people. How do we know? In the context, he explains, sons and daughters shall prophesy. Old men and young men will dream dreams and see visions. Male and female slaves, which means in 28, he was talking about 
free sons and free daughters, free old men, free young men, but in 29, male and female slaves. There we have in the immediate context him meaning all sorts of people, all kinds of people, will have the Holy Spirit be poured out upon them. In the book of Acts, in the upper room, it says in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus' mother was there, Jesus' brothers were there, and a total of about 120 disciples. Would that first group encompass male and female, young and old? Certainly. And that first group of disciples received the Holy Spirit in that way to speak in other languages, to speak to the crowds of people about the gospel. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit here is not the regeneration of the Spirit and not the indwelling of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not come for the first time into the world in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit did not come for the first time into believers in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 does not start the church Acts chapter 2 does not start the ministry of the Holy Spirit in saving people. Acts chapter 2 has to do with empowering the church with the filling of the Holy Spirit with various gifts of miracles to preach the gospel and spread the gospel after the ascension of Christ. That's what Acts chapter 2 does. It is not asserting and Joel is not asserting that there was no Holy Spirit regenerating and indwelling people in the Old Testament. He certainly was doing that in the Old Testament. And may I use the New Testament to prove it. That would be when Jesus and Nicodemus dialogue, Jesus teaches Nicodemus that he must be born of the Spirit. You must be born of the Spirit, he said. In John 3, 6 and 3, 8, born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? How could you know, not know that you have to be born of the Spirit? John 3, 6, 8, 10, 11. How, how is it possible for Nicodemus, the teacher of the Old Testament, not to understand that he had to be born of the Spirit or regenerated by the Spirit in the Old Testament? John 3 is before the day of Pentecost, so technically it's the Old Testament period, right? And so... Nicodemus was rebuked for not being born of the Spirit and not even understanding that one had to be born of the Spirit. Another is they were indwelt by the Spirit. For example, Luke eleven thirteen. Luke eleven thirteen. Luke eleven is also before Acts chapter two. So if we were to speak of Old Testament, New Testament, it's still in the age or the period of the Old Testament, Luke 11. And Jesus says there, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Well, why would we ask for the Holy Spirit? not only to regenerate us, but to indwell us and fill us and guide us into righteousness, into holiness. Luke eleven thirteen, before the day of Pentecost. This is not to mention the several examples in the Old Testament of those who had the Spirit, were indwelt by the Spirit, and regenerated by the Spirit in the Old Testament. So, 
Joel 2 and Acts 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for power, ministry, vindication, a proclamation of the gospel after the ascension of Christ. Then we come back to Joel and Joel 2.30 to 32. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Keep your place in Joel and return to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll read 19, 219 to 21. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's Peter or what are, what are Joel and Peter describing here? Are they describing great cataclysmic events before the second coming of Christ? Is the second coming of Christ in view? No, it doesn't seem that way. What are they describing then? I think what they're describing is, uh, in physical terms, great spiritual upheaval and turnaround. Great spiritual upheaval and turnaround that prepares them to meet the Lord. That prepares them to meet the Lord. And then 32 describes redemption. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If your Bible says delivered, that is unfortunate. It should say saved. Because we're not talking about physical deliverance. We're talking about eternal deliverance. The Bible describes eternal deliverance in terms of salvation. It's eternal salvation. And also for your information, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Joel 2.32, the Greek translation called the Septuagint. Also, Acts 2.21, in both places, we have the Greek verb, to be saved. The Greek verb to be saved and the translations translate it saved. Acts 2.21 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They don't say shall be delivered. They say saved. That means Joel is preaching calling on the name of the Lord. He's preaching that one should call on the name of the Lord. And what name should we call upon to be saved? It will be, it should be, the Lord Jesus. Examples of this. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. At the end of the chapter, when Stephen is about to die. Acts seven fifty nine. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He called upon the Lord. Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, 13 and 14. 9, 13 and 14. This Ananias is told by Christ to meet Paul. Paul who was newly converted, okay? Acts 9.13, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all 
who call upon your name. Ananias is talking to the Lord Jesus. For example, chapter 9, verse 5, and he, Paul, said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that same Lord appears to Ananias in verses 10 and following. The Lord Jesus. Call on the Lord Jesus. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. We start at verse 2, or just read verse 2. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The Lord Jesus Christ in every place, their Lord and ours. And back a few pages to Romans 10. Romans 10. We'll see how the apostle, he puts these verses together. Romans 10, 9, 9 to 13. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Joel 2.32. Whoever, whether Jew or Greek, whether male or female, young or old, free or slave, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, further, one more point to make in Joel 2.32 is at the very end. Even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. It seems to me that everyone is fixated on the first part of verse 32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Where they assume, because it says whoever, that everyone has the ability or a will to be able to call on the name of the Lord. But whoever doesn't mean everyone has the ability. Whoever means, like verse 28, 28 and 29, Sons, daughters, old men, young men, free men, slaves. That is what whoever means. And even Paul knew it that way because that's why he said, the same Lord is Lord of all, whether Jew or Greek, to whoever calls on the name of the Lord. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 10 and 11. Correct? So, the misunderstanding is there because they misunderstand whoever in verse 32. But verse 32 teaches us how one would ever call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Where does it do it? It says at the very end of the verse, whom the Lord calls. Whom the Lord calls. That calling is the effectual mysterious calling of the Holy Spirit to salvation. This is not the general outward external call of preaching the Bible to whomever will listen. We're talking about the internal call in Joel 2.32. And even the Apostle Peter understood this. The Apostle Peter in Acts 2 In Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Acts 2, 39. He preaches the gospel 
And then they, they ask him what they need to do. Verse 37, what shall we do? He tells them in 38 to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then 39, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Whoever among the people and their children and even people far away in distant lands, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. He's not saying that all of you are called and all of your children are called and all of those in distant countries are called. He's saying it's for all kinds of people, you and your next generation and people in faraway places, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. The effectual internal call. Peter preached that. How did he preach it? Why did he preach it? Because it's a biblical truth, but also because he knows what Joel said. Since he had just preached Joel earlier in his sermon. So the same for us. If we're going to come to Christ, if we're going to call upon him, we will first be called or appointed for salvation. As it says in Acts 13, 48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. If they were called or appointed to eternal life, then they believed. The same in Joel and Acts 2. If they were appointed, then they would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That is, they would repent and believe the gospel, confess their sins to be saved. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.